This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Please open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, if you are new, that is the last book of the Bible. It's at the very end. And uh, so you can just turn to the end of your Bible, the book of Revelation. It's singular, uh, as we talked about last week, that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not revelations with an S, it's not plural, it's singular. It's the revelation of Jesus. And what we're doing in this series, uh, kind of finishing up our year and starting next, is that we are looking at the original audience that this uh, book was written to. It was written to seven churches. And uh, last week we looked at uh, one of those churches. This week we're going to look at the second church, which is the church at Smyrna. Uh, Jesus' letter to the church at uh, Smyrna. Each of these seven churches you're going to pick up, there's a different, the the word from the Lord to them are different in each one. And uh, this one uh, today is distinctly different from what we read uh, last week. So uh, the church at Smyrna, and I'm beginning, I'm going to read in verse 8 of chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Lord, we today ask for your mercy and your grace as we look at your word. We pray that you would speak to us with clarity. We pray that you would sober us. We pray that you would fill us with faith and courage to move forward, we pray that you would strengthen us and that you would help us. Holy Spirit of God, speak to us today through your word. And I pray particularly for those in the room who are suffering, Lord, there's all kinds of suffering, but those who are in um, very heavy suffering, those who are enduring a long course of suffering today, I just pray that the sweetness of your grace and uh, the sweetness of your mercy would lift them up and strengthen them. Show them yourself today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is one of the more sober letters uh, that we're going to read, uh, sober by virtue of the situation that uh, this church found themselves in. I want to read you an article that came out just a couple of days ago, uh, an article on Voice of the Martyrs website. It's entitled, Pakistan Burned for blasphemy. Here's how it reads, just just a couple days ago. Infuriated by the rumors that a Christian couple 
had desecrated the Quran, and by the way, the word rumors is very important because that's going to play into the text today. Infuriated by the rumors that a Christian couple had desecrated the Quran, an angry mob attacked a man and his pregnant wife on November 4th, beat and burned them to death. Shazad Masih and his wife Shama were killed in the village of Kotrada Kishan in Punjab province, approximately 40 miles southwest of Lahore, Pakistan. According to an investigator with the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan, the attack was instigated by the owner of the brick kiln where the couple worked after he complained to local mosque leaders that Shama had burned a Quran. Don't know if that's true or not, that was the charge. Mosque loudspeakers throughout the surrounding communities announced the offense and called on faithful Muslims to avenge the disgrace of their holy book. Though the police tried to stop the crowd, they were outnumbered. A brick kiln manager hid the couple in an office and locked the door, but some of the pack climbed on the roof of the building and tore a hole through the roof. After beating them, they tied Shazad and Shema to a tractor and dragged them in circles. Eventually, the two were taken to the brick kiln, where they were shoved into holes used for stoking the kiln's fire. According to Voice of the Martyrs workers, Shema pleaded for mercy before they forced her body into the kiln. The heat was so intense that afterward, almost nothing of their bodies was left. The next day, nearly 200 people, mostly from the Christian community and human rights organizations, gathered in Lahore to demand justice for the couple and to protest Pakistan's blasphemy laws. Blasphemy laws are often used to resolve personal disputes or target minority groups, and the penalty for some blasphemy offenses is death. At the time of her death, Shema was pregnant with the couple's fourth child. Their three orphan children range in age from 18 months to six years old and are being cared for by family. Voice of the Martyrs workers met with the family members shortly afterward to pray and encourage them. I, I wish we could report that their circumstance was rare and unusual, but it is simply not. Christians are, according to Open Doors USA, Christians are the most persecuted religious group worldwide. I'm not talking about the mild kind of persecution that we kind of had a persecution complex in our culture that the media is out to get us or something like that. I'm, I'm talking about physical persecution. Um, at least 180 Christians around the world are killed each month for their faith. In more than 60 countries, Christians face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors simply because of their belief in Christ. That stats from the U.S. Department of State. Uh, this has always been the case. It, it does seem like it's ramping up in our day, but it has always been the case that Christians have suffered for their faith. Jesus predicted it. Jesus told his followers that this is exactly what their lot in life would be. And I share that story with you just to bridge into the text today because we read this text and in our culture, it just seems so distant. One of the hardest jobs of a preacher is, or a student of the Bible for that matter, is to understand the original context and then make application today to a world, from a world that was so far different than ours in many ways, culturally. And here we see a culture that is very different. The church in Smyrna experienced a very different culture than what we experience in Frisco, Texas. But they did not experience a very different culture from what many Christians experience today opposed for their faith, persecuted for their faith, arrested for their faith, 
harmed for their faith, uh, excluded in severe ways for their faith, robbed for their faith, beaten, raped for their faith because of their stand for Jesus. And so I read that story because it bridges into the world that so many live today at different parts of our world, just like the church at Smyrna. You see, the church at Smyrna was like the other seven churches that we're reading about, experiencing persecution and hatred from the outside world. The church at Ephesus experienced problems from within. The church at Smyrna seems to be experiencing problems from without. They were a hated minority. Jesus says here that the devil was actually acting to persecute them. That's, what Je- that's Jesus' words. That's not someone who's kind of uh, hyper-spiritual or, or kind of looking for things that go bump in the night all around them and naming demons. And, no, that's Jesus. Jesus says that the devil would throw them in prison, that the enemy was opposed to this small little church and that he was using people to harm them. And yet Jesus singles out this church to send a letter, and I wanna look at two things just like we did last week. I wanna look at his evaluation of this church, and then I wanna look at his exhortation to this church. First of all, his evaluation. His evaluation is very different than Ephesus. In Ephesus, he commended them for their doctrinal strength. He commended them for drawing lines and separating themselves from false doctrine. But he said, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. In this letter, Jesus doesn't have anything against the church at Smyrna. There's only two churches that we're going to look at that don't receive correction and rebuke. And Ephesus even received a a godly threat that Jesus said he was going to turn the lights off in their church. Basically, their influence would be shut down if they didn't repent. But there's no call to repentance in Smyrna. That there's no call to turn. There's no call to, here's what I have against you. There's nothing like that, which is amazing. Because this church, as we're about to see, was enduring tremendous tribulation. And I don't know about you, but when I'm enduring, I, I can't relate at all to their persecution, but when I'm, I'm enduring any kind of thing that I put in the category of tribulation, and this is all so sobering, please be sobered with me. As I've studied this week, and as I've read some various things about martyrdom this week, uh, it's so sobering, so sobering for what, I, for what agitates my soul and what qualifies as a tremendous burden to me. So sobering to read something like this. But when I go through my tribulation with a lowercase t, when I go through my tribulation, it often, it squeezes and it brings out what's in me. And what often comes out that's in me is ugly. What often that comes out within me is not glorious and holy and righteous. Oftentimes when I'm pressed, what comes out is impatience and anger and self-righteousness and judgment and these kinds of things. But what comes out in this church under their persecution, there, there's, Jesus offers no correction. I'm not saying they, they certainly sinned. They were not perfect people by any stretch of the imagination. But his word to them is a word of comfort in their suffering. It's not a word of correction. And so they are being tested, and what's being revealed is beautiful about them. Here's a couple things we learn about the church. First of all, they're facing tribulation. Look at verse 9 with me. I know your tribulation. The The fact that Jesus knows is throughout all the letters, it is very comforting. The first vision is that Jesus is standing, John's first vision is Jesus is standing in the middle of lampstands, seven lampstands. Uh, uh, you know, they would have a stand with some kind of lamp on top that would have oil and it would, a wick in it, it would be lit, and that's how you would 
light things. So there's, he sees these seven lampstands, they're lit up, and Jesus is standing in the midst of them, and the seven lampstands are the churches. And what he's saying to them is, I am with you. And what he says to the church at Smyrna is, I know your tribulation. I understand what you are going through. And Jesus says that to you too. Even if your tribulation and mine isn't what theirs is, it's still serious and it's still real and it still affects us. And so Jesus knows and he cares. I know your tribulation. The word tribulation is a word that means pressing or pressure. What he's saying is church at Smyrna, I know you are hard pressed. You are being squeezed. You have something heavy. There's this heavy weight weighing upon you and squeezing the life out of you. But when the pressure is on, when the pressure is on, they did not bend. They did not break. God is with them and he says, I know what you are going through. See, maybe you're tempted to wonder, maybe you feel squeezed today. Maybe you feel pressured. Maybe you feel like you are in a vice and, and somebody's just turning the pressure so that it's squeezing tighter and tighter around you. And the truth is, is that the Lord knows that. And he's with you today. He wants you to know he's with you. He says so in his word. I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. A primary part of their tribulation is persecution, and we'll talk about that in a second. But secondly, I not only know your tribulation, I know your poverty, and then it says, parentheses, but you are rich. I know your poverty. The church at Smyrna was poor. The, Smyrna was a wealthy city. It was a, really a proud city. It was evidently a beautiful city. Uh, they, they claimed to be one of the most beautiful cities in all of Asia Minor. There was a, it was a very proud environment and a very, like Ephesus, a very wealthy city. But the Christians in the city were poor. Now, there's two common Greek words for poverty. One is the kind of word that we might call the working poor. It's someone who makes a really low wage. Maybe they're underpaid and they're just barely getting by. They've got food and a little bit of clothing, they're barely getting by, the working poor, that kind of thing. Then there's another word that's used that means absolute destitute, owning nothing at all. That's the word used for Smyrna. That's the word used, I know your poverty. I know your absolute destitution. It could be translated your beggarliness. I know that you don't even have enough to exist. I know that about you. And yet, Jesus says, you are rich. Jesus looks at the church so differently from the way the culture looks at the church. No pagan opposer in Smyrna would look and say, that's a rich church. They would say, that's a despised people. That's a marginalized, that's a strange people. That's a people that does not fit with society. We're going to see in a moment. That's a people that, that opposes our society even, they would view them as. They are despised people. They have nothing. Look what their faith has done for them. They have nothing. The poorest of the poor, and yet Jesus looks and he says, I see your church and you are rich. You are rich. There's something beautiful about you. Despised by the world, loved by Jesus. They are rich in grace. They are rich in Jesus' presence because the Lord is close. The Bible says he's near the brokenhearted. He's right there with them. He's leaning in towards them. He's giving them a letter and speaking to them. They are rich. Listen, a rich church is a group of people who in the midst of suffering trust Jesus and represent him well. 
A rich church has nothing to do with the affluence of the people. It has nothing to do with the facility. It has nothing to do with the programs or the size of the church. That that is not richness. For Jesus, his evaluation is rich, is people that when they suffer, they look to him and they reflect his presence and his love. A rich church is a church that endures difficulty. And we don't get this. I don't think this way. You know, when I meet someone, uh, often this is, in in California when I would meet someone, if they ask what I did, I just knew, well, that's the end of the conversation. Once I was passed, they didn't have anything else to say. I was like, oh, okay, and then there's this awkward silence. Like I said, I'm a mafia hitman or something in California. (laughs) Oh, so what do you do for work? I'm a pastor. Oh, he's like, oh, you killed 20 people. That that was a response. In Texas, it's different. People want to talk to me a little bit. So what do you do? Uh, I'm a pastor. Oh, great. First question, always, where's your church? Sometimes it's what kind of church, but usually where's your church? So I tell them where we are. And uh, then the second question, unless they ask what kind of a church is, almost always the second question is, what size is your church? Which is just the strangest question. It's just the strangest question. I honestly don't know our membership, and I've never wanted to know the exact number, so I can always say, I'm not sure exactly. But here's about how many people show up on a Sunday. So I answer their question and tell them what our average, you know, around what our attendance is. Something like that. But what a strange thing to ask. It's so Dallas, is it not? That's us. That's Texas. That's not Dallas. That's Texas. We, that, that, that's the first thing I want to know. Whereas, as if that tells you anything. We could be 10,000 people that are gathered and aren't serving Christ at all. Or we could be 20 people that are on fire and loving him and sacrificing and enduring difficulty and loving him with all our lives. And it would be two very different evaluations from the Lord. So he says, you're rich. Why? Not because you're great. You're actually small and despised. But you are rich. That's how he views it. He says, I know your poverty. I know your tribulation. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So I know you're being slandered. I know you are uh, in tribulation. I know you are poor. I know you are being slandered. That is spoken against, spoken against. Jesus says the people that are speaking against them are people who say they, they're Jews, but they're really not. They say they're the people of God, but they're really not. In other words, they are, are in the line of Abraham. They're Jewish people. They gather at the Jewish synagogue, but they're not acting like God's people because they are persecuting God's people who believe in God's Messiah. He's saying that you're not, in Romans 2, he makes this point, that you're not a Jew by your outward conformity. So he says circumcision doesn't make you a Jew. It's inward circumcision. It's the heart that makes one a genuine Jew, a person who ultimately uh, worships uh, Christ. Is what that, that they are, we are the people of God who worship Christ. Philippians 3, Paul says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So this is not any kind of anti-Semitic statement here that's being made in this passage. He's just saying the people that say they are my people are actually slandering you and they are a synagogue of Satan. What does that mean? Are they reading the Satanic Bible and offering sacrifices to Satan? No, they are not. Uh, Satan means accuser. It's the name of the devil. It means accuser. So what he's saying is the people who should be my people or should be acting like my people are acting like their father, the devil, is what Jesus said. They are accusing you. So they are speaking against you and they are 
accusing you. They are an assembly of Satan. So the, the slander that they're offering, we don't know exactly what it is, but I think it has to do with the very next section, which is persecution. So they're in tribulation, poverty, experiencing slander, verse 19, do not fear what you are about to suffer, here's persecution. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. So they were being persecuted by civil authorities. The, these, these Jews who say they are Jews but aren't really Jews, they wouldn't have the power to uh, bring civil uh, persecution. They couldn't throw anyone in jail, but the Romans could. They're a Roman colony, and so they're saying you would be thrown into prison. Why would they be thrown into prison? Uh, Rome was notoriously polytheistic. Everybody had a lot of gods. So it wasn't illegal to worship Jesus. That wasn't an act that would be illegal like it would in perhaps in some places today. It wouldn't be illegal. Or an act of blasphemy, like we read about the couple that was killed in Pakistan. They, committed, they were accused of committing blasphemy. It wouldn't be like that. Uh, probably what it is, has to do with is the fact that, and this, you pick up this theme throughout Revelation, is that in this, in this time, it, this book is probably written at the end of the first century. At the end of the first century, um, there was widespread emperor worship. And as a matter of fact, in Smyrna, Smyrna was almost a, a, viewed as a hotbed, a hot seat of emperor worship. Let me read to you a little bit. This is from a, an author named uh, uh, Barclay uh, who writes about what was going on. And this will give you a little picture as to why they would be thrown in prison, why they were being opposed. And I think it also explains probably what is the accusation that came from the Jews, the slander or the accusation. This is what he writes. Emperor worship had begun as a spontaneous demonstration of gratitude to Rome. So all these Roman colonies began to worship emperors to say thanks, and it also unified the entire Roman Empire. They were different cultures, but they were unified under emperor worship. Towards the end of the first century, in the days of Domitian, the final step was taken, and Caesar worship became compulsory. Once a year, the Roman citizen, which would have been everybody in, the, in Smyrna, once a year, the Roman citizen must burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar. And having done so, he was given a certificate to guarantee that he had performed his religious duty. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about what those certificates said. All that the Christians had to do was to burn the pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord receive their certificate, and go away and worship as they pleased. But that is precisely what the Christians would not do. They would not give, they would give to no man the name of Lord. That name they would keep for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. They would not even formally conform. Uncompromisingly, the Christians refused to go through the forms of Caesar worship, and therefore the Christians were outlaws and liable to persecution at any time. Persecution was not continuous, but it was liable to break out at any time, for informers were frequent and numerous. The Christian was like a man over whose head the sword of execution was constantly poised, and he never knew when it might fall. For the Roman government regarded his refusal to conform as an act of a dangerous and disloyal citizen. Nowhere can life have been more dangerous for a Christian than Smyrna. Smyrna was an enthusiastic center of Caesar worship. 
For a man to become a Christian anywhere was to become an outlaw. In Smyrna, above all places, for a man to enter the Christian church was literally to take his life in his own hands. In Smyrna, the church was a place for heroes. In Smyrna, the church was a place for heroes. So why would they be culturally? Now, this was the end of the first century. This wouldn't have been happening when Paul was writing, uh, you know, 30 years prior. But at the end of the first century, this was typical. So why would they have been thrown in prison? Because they were disloyal citizens. They were political rebels. It wasn't a religious issue. It was a political issue that unified the uh, Roman Empire. And so they would have been viewed as political rebels, as outlaws, because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. So what could the slander have been? Here's an interesting thing. The Jews had some type, evidently some type of exemption from this Caesar worship thing. They were given some type of exemption. So very likely they could have said these Christians who were viewed as a sect of Judaism, they are not part of us. Uh, they are dangerous. They are disloyal. They won't say Caesar is Lord. So they, very possibly they were being accused by Jews for not being faithful. They were being accused as being rebels and then persecuted for uh, failing to say that Caesar is Lord and worshiping him, which the Jews were freed from doing. So Jesus lovingly prepares them for what's coming. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. So he's preparing them. He's saying, some of you are going to be arrested. You're going to be put in prison for 10 days. Is that literal? I, I, I doubt it. I mean, it could be, but the book of Revelation is filled with symbolic numbers all over the place. Uh, there are seven churches. There are seven bowls of wrath. Uh, there is a number of the beast. There are all these numbers. There's 144,000. There's all these numbers throughout the book. It could be they're going to be in jail for 10, 10 days. It probably means that's a short period of time. So there is a short, measured persecution that's coming. You're going to go to jail. It's going to be short, and it's going to be measured. So that's probably what it means. Or if it's literal, it's short and it's measured. So whether it's literal or not, that, that's what it is. Uh, and then some of you are going to die. Be faithful to death. He's saying up until your very death, be faithful. Satan is behind this. He is using the, the pagans, the, the Romans who don't believe in Christ. He is using Jews who don't believe in Christ. And he is persecuting the church to squelch it to stamp it under his feet, to win. Satan is seeking to do away with the people of Christ. He's seeking to stamp out the church. And that's why we have the whole book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation reveals to these individuals, Jesus rules, and he is glorious, and he wins. The story will not end as you are experiencing right now. It will be very different. That's the reason. It comforts people in their affliction. So that's his evaluation of what they're going through. Here's his exhortation to the church. His first exhortation to the church in this situation and to all of us who are experiencing any kind of suffering today. Here's the first exhortation, verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Do not fear. Jesus says this a lot. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He wants to give them courage. Why should they not be afraid? Well, because of who Jesus is. Look at verse 8. 
These are the words of the first and the last. Jesus is the first and the last. The beginning and the end, we could say. He is eternal. He is at the beginning and he is at the end. Jesus is at the end. He will finalize everything. You are experiencing tribulation. Jesus is at the end. He will restore all things and bring you to himself. You're experiencing slander. Listen, Jesus will have the last word. Maybe you're being slandered today. Maybe you're being affected because someone is opposing you with their words. Maybe someone at your workplace is speaking about you and seeking to tear down your reputation and say false things about you, gossip about you. Maybe you're being slandered by family members. Maybe there's someone speaking against you. Listen, here's the comfort. Jesus will have the last word. Jesus will bring all things into righteousness and justice. Slander will not, slander's dangerous. Slander has tremendous effect. Here's the power of words. He puts a long tribulation and utter poverty, having nothing and going to jail and being killed. In that same list of things, he puts slander. Amazing, isn't it? But speech can be devastatingly harmful to the people of God. And so he is saying, you are being you know, falsely accused here and, and being slandered. Well, he is the last, he will have the final word. I know your poverty, you don't have much, one day you will have everything. He is the first, the source, and he is the last. He is the last. So Jesus rules, the first and the last. Jesus wins as well, he wants them to know his victory. I am the first and last, the words of the first and last, who died and came to life, that's verse eight. Who died and came to life. Go back to the previous chapter. He uses the exact same words at the beginning. If you don't remember the reading, if you were here last week, um, we had a scripture reading from uh, Revelation 1 in, during the singing portion of our worship service. And in that passage, we read about Jesus and the vision John has of Jesus. He's clothed with a robe. He has a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head is white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes are a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. His, his voice is like the roar of many waters. So John sees Jesus in, resurrected in his glory and fires coming out of his eyes. He's white, his hair is like this white wool. It's this amazing vision of the glory of Christ. And verse 17, look at this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When he sees the risen Jesus, he's done. He falls over. But he laid his right hand on me, and what did he say? Fear not, first thing he said. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's the exact same thing he says to Smyrna. I'm the first and the last who died and came to life. He said the same thing to John. Do not fear. Why? Because Jesus has died and been brought to life. Jesus has defeated death. He says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Hades is the realm of the dead. I have the keys of death and Hades in my hand. So they may throw you into prison. They may even behead you or stone you to death, however they kill, they, probably by stoning you. They may kill you, crucify you, they crucified. They may kill you for your faith, but you will not be dead. You will not remain dead because I have the key of death. I can unlock the chain of death and you will have life. 
I have defeated, I am the resurrected living one, I live forevermore. I have not been defeated, I have won, I rule and I reign, I am the glorious Lord that is amidst amidst the church, I am with you, I know what you are going through, trust me, do not fear, for I rule. He reveals the power of the risen Christ the glory of Jesus, and that is, to, that is to vanquish their fears. That is to wipe them away. Jesus knows their painful tribulation because he endured tribulation for them. He knows suffering because he endured suffering for them. He knows poverty because he became poor that we might be rich, spiritually speaking. He was spoken against. He was falsely accused. He was innocent and he died for the guilty, you and me. So he knows, he's not some God at a distance saying, prove your worth to win my acceptance. He's the God who says, I have already won for you. I have already died for you. I have been raised and I have defeated the power of death. So do not fear. Listen, if any of us in the room who are believers in Christ could have the vision John did, if we could see Jesus right now in all his glory, if we could have this vision and see the the, the fire from his eyes, and the glorious gleam of his white, hot, blazing holiness. If we could see his power, which is greater than anything that we can imagine, if we would, our fears would vanish like that. I mean, really, that Jesus who rules all says, I hold your life in my hand, I'm coming back for you, I'm with you, I'll take care of you, then am I gonna make it financially? I just don't think that would be bothering me if I could see him. What's the diagnosis of this illness? That's serious. I don't think it would even matter if I was looking at him in glory. There would just be a sense. That's what he's trying to say. See me in the midst of your suffering. We sing that song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. You know, look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's exactly Revelation 1. When you see his glory, the things of earth become very, very dim. If you, we could see Jesus right now, our fears would vanish. We would see complete power in Christ. We'd see complete love for us. You would see complete protection that Jesus is guarding you the good shepherd. You would see complete security, complete compassion for you in your weakness, complete care for you, Jesus loving you, caring for you, holding you in his hand, never letting you go, defeating your enemies, protecting you eternally. Yes, we have enemies and suffering in this world. In this world, you will know tribulation, Jesus said. Yes, we have difficulty, but the risen Lord protects us for all eternity. See, the way fear works is fear tells us, fear tells us of, a, uh, of a terrible future. As one author says, fear kind of prophesies lies to us. It tells us all this stuff that will happen. But here's the really bad thing. Some of the stuff may happen that fear tells us, but it always tells us that we'll be alone in that suffering. So fear tells us, I got a cough, uh, it must be terminal. You know, you start going down, what, what could that be? What could that lead to? What, so fear leads us on this trail to think something, here's where it's gonna lead to. Well, it could be, I may have something that I don't know right now that, that is terminal. But the fear says that when I get there, that would be the worst thing imaginable. And yet Jesus will be with us no matter what we face. Or fear tells us 
Uh, fear tells us our, my marriage won't change. My spouse is going to always be like this. It predicts, pre, uh, predicts a false future as if God could never intervene, as if Jesus can never change his or her heart so that our marriage changes. Fear says my child will rebel or my rebellious child will never come home and experience the open arms of the father. That's what fear tells us. Fear tells us um, that our job will never work out, that we'll end up broke, that we will retire broke, that we will, uh, that we will experience great grief or sorrow in the future. Fear tells us we will be all alone. Fear tells us God doesn't really care. So that fear tells us all of these circumstances and that God will never be with us. And Jesus is saying to the church at Smyrna, look, I'm telling you, he's not saying sinful fear, he's saying facts. Some of you are gonna get arrested. But it's gonna be very short. You're gonna be in jail, you're gonna feel like this is forever. It's gonna be a very short time this is gonna happen. Just be faithful to death. Some of you are gonna actually die, but you're gonna be with me, the resurrected Lord. It's gonna be glorious, and that's why we see martyrs throughout the book and, and the special reward for them as well. So do not fear, why? Because Jesus is overcome. Do not fear, why? Because we will never be left alone. Do not spend your time fearful about what will happen, but trust Jesus that even if it's bad, like it will be for some of the people in Smyrna, he is with us. We will never be alone. We will never be alone. I know your tribulation, I'm with you. So two exhortations, do not fear. The second thing he says is be faithful. This is in verse 10. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Based on what Jesus has done for the Christians in Smyrna, he said, you be faithful. You just stay true to me. It's relational language. Be faithful to me, your Lord. Be faithful to me. I mean, this would be tremendously disillusioning, potentially. You, somebody comes into your town, starts telling the gospel. You believe this is great news. I can know God. I can have my sins forgiven. I can have a clear conscience. I can have a new life. I can have eternal life. <clears throat> this is great news. I can be reconciled with people, the people of God. I can, I can experience love and community in the church. This is wonderful. All the promises of the Christian life, and then it goes very badly for them uh, because Jesus alone, Jesus demands an, a unique allegiance. We don't worship many gods. We worship him alone, and that puts them on the outside with those who worship Caesar, the emperor. And so it goes very bad, they are suffering. They are suffering, and so Jesus says, be faithful, and he points them to the future. He says, look, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What is that? Well, it probably doesn't mean like a gold crown, like a little the Burger King thing you get, you know, that kind of crown, it probably doesn't mean that or else none of us would persevere if that's what we had in store. But uh, it probably doesn't mean that kind of crown. It, it probably means more something that crowned your head. It's probably, commentators say it's probably like a laurel wreath, that, uh, a victor uh, in the games or something like that in the first century would get a crown that was made out of a laurel wreath, which was a reward, which means you won. It was a reward for uh, having accomplished something. And Jesus says, I've got the crown of life. I'm going to put on you, in essence, eternal life. Be faithful to death, because when your eyes close in death, you're going to see me, and you're going to be with me, and I'm going to put a crown on you as a martyr, and it's, I'm going to crown you with eternal 
life, completely free from suffering, never being slandered again, never being poor, never being opposed, never being hated, never being despised, never being gossiped about, never being physically beaten, never having your things stolen, never having a breakdown between you and others, never being separated from your family because you converted to me and they resisted and rejected you, never unfairly fired from your job because you were a believer in me, nothing. You will be experiencing eternal bliss in my presence. So be faithful to the very end because there's something that waits you, is what Jesus says. So that's a positive, a positive promise of reward. But he also gives a promise of kind of a negative as well in that uh, he says in verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the positive is you receive a crown of life. The, what you don't receive, if we could say it negative, what you don't receive is the second death. Now, what is the second? He who conquers, that is, he who continues to the end, will not be hurt by the second death. The believer in Jesus, the one who trusts him, the one who believes in Jesus' Savior, will not be experienced the second death. What is the second death? Well, it's the worst thing imaginable. I cannot describe to you anything worse than the second death, and I cannot describe to you adequately the second death. But three times the phrase second death is used in Revelation. I'm going to read you one of them. This is what it is. Revelation 20, 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death. So we don't have to get creative in interpreting this because 18 chapters later, the Bible tells us what the second death is. It is eternal punishment. It is eternal damnation. It is condemnation for, for our sins. And so what he says is, the one who believes in me will never experience eternal punishment, the lake of fire, eternal damnation, eternal judgment. No one will ever experience that if you're in me. Now, we would always want to be very sensitive and careful in how we counsel someone in, surf, in suffering. When someone's suffering, our primary job as a friend or as a counselor is to come alongside. Our first priority is to come alongside and listen and to understand and to care. That, that's really what we do. But here's what, so I wouldn't pull this out of context and just spring it on people at all. But here's what Jesus says to people who are suffering worse than I think probably most of us in the room are. Going to get thrown in jail and killed, some of you. Here's what he says. No matter how bad it is, you have eternity waiting you. And even a stoning or a crucifixion, I mean, I can't even imagine. Even that is a light and momentary affliction compared to eternity and compared to what those who resist Jesus will receive. Because the second death will never touch you. They may kill your body, they cannot kill your soul. They may take your body, but they cannot take away your eternal life. They may end your relationship with all people physically on earth, but they will never end your relationship with me. The second death, the lake of fire, suffering eternally for our sins, paying for our sins, is so unimaginably reprehensible that whatever happens here does not even compare. Faithfulness to Jesus is so much more glorious because what awaits us. Now, I don't want to be too quick to play the eternity card on someone in the middle of their suffering because it can sound like we don't care, we're not, we're not listening, we're just trying to give them an answer. Okay? So I'm not speaking to anybody individually in a counseling room. I'm speaking broadly the word of God to the whole church here. 
And I'm saying that this is a comfort that Jesus gives. It's not insincere or I don't really understand. It is very, it's the most sincere words ever spoken. It's Jesus. And what he says is, no matter what you're experiencing in tribulation, poverty, slander, persecution, these are the categories for Smyrna. No matter what you're experiencing like that, what I want you to know, what awaits you is so great, the crown of life, that this won't even measure compared to that. And what I also want to tell you is that what you're being spared from because of Christ, because of the blood of Christ, it looks like it's costing you everything right now, but the reality is you're being spared from something you can't even imagine the level of torment that awaits those who oppose Jesus. And so what he says to them is, what you're experiencing, here's the faith to persevere because there is a great reward at the end and there is an avoiding a great condemnation at the end and there is Jesus, the resurrected Savior at the end. And so the reality is, no matter what happens, the worst thing that could happen is someone to kill us. I mean, that'd be the worst thing. The, the greatest thing you could take away from someone is their life. What could you take away more than their life? The greatest thing, the greatest harm someone could do you is to kill you. And Jesus would say to those who will face that, you will meet me on the other end and receive the crown of life. You will be rewarded for your faithfulness, is what he's saying. And you will avoid because of me, you will avoid the greatest suffering imaginable because your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Whatever we face, we want to see the risen Jesus, the power of Christ, that he's with us, the glory that he has defeated death because then it's fear not because I see him in the midst of my sufferings. Fear not. And we want to be called to be faithful. Why? Because there's a Savior that waits at the finish line as we make it to the finish line. There's a Savior that waits for us. Whether our sufferings are great or whether they're minimal, there's still a Savior at the finish line waiting to embrace us for eternity, to bring us home, to bring us home, to love us for eternity, to bring us to a place where there is no more sorrow, no more tears. That's the end of Revelation. There's no more tear, no more pain, no more sorrow. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. That's what awaits the person in Christ. And so Jesus brings comfort to this church. I'm the first and the last. I died and came to life. I'm life for you. And I await you. I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And then as he says to each of the letters, lest we think this is just for the persecuted church, lest we think this is just for the first century in Smyrna, lest we think any of that, this is what he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit is speaking to us, and the Spirit is speaking to us in suffering. And he's saying, lift your eyes off your circumstances and see your loving, risen Savior, and fear not. And he's saying to us in suffering, keep pressing on and be faithful to me, Jesus says. Keep pressing on and be faithful to me, because you cannot imagine what awaits you. It's more than any of us can ask or think. So press on in my power, he says. Press on in my grace, he says. Press on in my strength. For I will hold you now, and I will await you at the end. Reward you by grace. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.